So not in his, in his worst nightmares had he ever envisioned that he'd end up here. If, if he could go back in time and change a bunch of decisions that he's made, he would do it in a second. <clears throat> he had turned his back on his parents. His friends would have absolutely nothing to do with him, and he couldn't blame them because all he saw was disgust when he looked at himself in the mirror. He knew what was in everybody's mind when they walked by him every day. Sometimes they would just whisper sellout, and sometimes they would just scream traitor. But one thing is for sure, there was always contempt, and there was always disgust in their voice. In fact, they made a special category for guys like him. They couldn't put him in the little bucket of, of sinners because he was a tax collector. And one particular day, Matthew is sitting at his, at his post, at his tax collecting post, and a crowd had gathered around a man that was teaching just a, a few feet away. And Matthew had learned from some of the guys that that man that was teaching was Jesus of Nazareth. And he'd heard about the dude, but he had never seen him before. And so he leaned in to try to maybe hear what he was saying, even if it was just to dismiss the king as a crackpot. And a group of men had interrupted Jesus mid-sentence, <clears throat> mid and they took a paralyzed man and they sat him at his, at his feet, at the king's feet. And rather than being annoyed, Jesus immediately looked down at the man and he simply said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And Matthew was so shocked by those simple words, they just laughed out, out loud. And some of the people looked at him like, Dude, you don't need to be laughing at this. And Jesus uh, looked over at Matthew, slumped down in his chair at his little booth, and then Jesus looks back to this man that they had put at his feet, and he said this, he said, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Get up and take your mat and go home. And the man jumped up, and the whole crowd just kind of looked with amazement, and holy mackerel, Matthew had never seen anything like this before. And then Matthew looked up, and Jesus is walking right towards his table. And if Matthew didn't know any better, the teacher was looking right at him and Matthew sort of looked around to see who else he may have been looking at but there was nobody else there and Jesus stopped at the table and he he leaned in and ever so gently he whispered in Matthew's ear follow me not knowing anything really about this Jesus guy not knowing where he was going what he was calling Matthew to do or why in the world he'd even selected him in the first place Matthew found himself just immediately standing up and leaving this tax collecting thing behind. And somewhere deep inside, Matthew knew that that decision was the most important decision of his life. So good morning again. My name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors here at my church. And we're starting a new series called Made for Mission. And I believe that the invitation that God is going to give us has the potential to be just radically transforming in our lives. I believe that, the, that God has a mission for us, but we've got to decide what we're going to do with that. How are we going to react to it? We can ignore it and just kick the can down the road. We can maybe jump in and out, maybe with the way God's kind of wired us up and sometimes we're in, sometimes we're out. Or, or we can live our lives on mission and in connection with the way that God has wired us uniquely to be and in line with the way that he is working.
and I know this, I know at some point in all of our lives, we, we try to figure out our purpose. And most of us would acknowledge that there's a purpose in our lives that is bigger than we are. In fact, people sometimes, often, will work for less money if they really, really believe in what they're doing. And as much as we think it does, and as much as the world just hammers it into us, financial wealth does not equal joy. It doesn't. The world is screaming that at us all the time, but it doesn't. People want their lives to be about something good and about something meaningful. And Stanford University three or four years ago did a study on that issue to see if people truly desired happiness or if people truly desired meaningfulness. And they come away with people desire meaning. In fact, they, they categorized people as givers and takers. And, and, and being a giver was linked directly to meaningfulness, where being a taker was linked to temporal, time-bound, fleeting happiness. The two just aren't the same. A life of meaning is tied to our purpose to our purpose in the larger context of life and of community. And and look, God has crafted uh, us wonderfully and uniquely for a purpose. We are made and built for a mission. And so over the next six weeks or so, we're going to walk how that plays out in our lives. So y'all pray with me. Lord, we love you this morning. We thank you so much for being here. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have uniquely crafted each one of us you just you breathed life into us lord we thank you we love you in jesus name so i want to look we're going to be in matthew 9 the book of matthew is the first uh book in the new testament it's one of four gospels which are we've talked about the different kinds of books in the scripture and we just finished the book of james there's letters in the in in the scriptures and there's uh the gospels are historical narratives it's a There are four different accounts of Christ's life, and we're going to be in Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 9, looking at five or six verses in chapter 9, and we're going to read about Matthew's being called by Jesus, and I believe that it has incredible significance for our lives today. So verse 9 reads this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Just the fact that Jesus approached Matthew speaks volumes. Tax collectors, that's what Matthew was, were seen in that culture as the very worst of the worst. Tax collectors were Jews that had sold their people out. He's sitting there at a booth and he's collecting, excuse me, collecting taxes for Rome. And there's a margin, a markup. That's how he makes his money. He's marking up the taxes, and the Jews are paying the taxes to him, and that's the way he is getting rich. People hated them. And if we could go back in time and sort of freeze frame that scene and figure out who would the person be that would be the very most least likely that Jesus would pick out and train up to send out and change the world, it'd be Matthew. It is crazy. Through this huge sea of of people, this crowd, Jesus makes a beeline for Matthew. Of all people, the sinner 
the the traitor, the the scumbag tax collector is the one that Jesus locks onto and makes a beeline for. In the verse nine, it begins with as Jesus went on from there, which means he's going on to there from somewhere. Something was going on to be going on to, if that makes sense. That this was written by Matthew himself. These words are significant because wherever Jesus was coming from to there, Matthew had probably seen what was going on. And so what was it? He had just seen Jesus heal this paralyzed man that was laid at Jesus' feet. But even more importantly than the physical healing of that man, Matthew saw and heard Jesus say these six or seven words, Take heart, son, and this is Matthew 9 too. Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Total blasphemy to the Pharisees and to the Jews that saw that. Total blasphemy to them. The fact that he claimed authority to forgive sins. By claiming, who can forgive sins but God alone? By claiming authority to forgive sins, he's claiming to be God. And, and, and you've got to think, and you're going to run into people out in the world, and they're going to tell you Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, yeah, he did. He just for, said he forgave sins. My mom and dad, the night I got saved, I went and talked to them, and they asked me two questions. The first question was, do you actually believe in the resurrection? And I said, well, yeah, I do, because that's kind of a critical part of this whole Christian thing. They asked me that question. And the second question they said, or not really a question, they, they, they made a statement. They said, well, he never claimed to be God. That's a lie from hell. He did claim to be God. He claimed to be God right there because who other than God can forgive sin? And so Matthew is sitting there, and he saw that happen, and he heard those words. And so this question you know, was racing through Matthew's mind, and it's this, could this Jesus forgive me of my shame? And so point number one is Jesus pursues sinners. He pursues sinners. What a cool word, pursues. And it reminds me when I was in college playing football and we were in practice and I was a little bitty guy, much smaller, mean a little bit maybe, but small. It was a defensive back, and we were in practice. And a running back's running down the sideline, and I, le- I pulled up at the last minute because I knew he was going to go out of bounds. And our scout team defensive back coach came up, and I don't know, if you've played football, you know that the face mask is really a handlebar for a coach because they grab the face mask and they pull you in. And he said, son, you have to pursue You have to pursue. He said, I don't care if that running back runs up in the stands. You better chase him up in the stands. If he runs in the locker room, you better chase him in the locker room. If he runs in the parking lot and climbs a tree, I want to see you climbing up that tree. Pursue, 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 pursue. That's what I get in my mind when I think about Jesus will climb up a tree to pursue a sinner. That's what that means. So he pursues sinners. He doesn't pursue the good folks. He's pursuing Sinners, but then he also, Jesus summons sinners. What did he say to Matthew? He said, follow me. Jesus said, follow me. So he summons, so he pursues us, and then he summons us. And that is incredibly significant to me and you. If Matthew, the sinner of all sinners, the scumbag tax collector, 
if he is called, then maybe you and I are called. J.D. Greer wrote a book. Uh, the name of the book is Gaining by Losing. And here's what he said. He said, there's a widespread myth in the church that calling into ministry only happens to a select few Christians. That's a lie from hell right there. The lie is that that their job, those called into ministry, uh, their job is to do the ministry, and everybody else's job is to show up and pay for it. Few lies cripple the mission more than that one. Every single believer is called to leverage his or her life for the spread of the gospel. Every single Christian, every single believer is called to leverage his story or her story for somebody else's forever. Every single believer is a minister, and every minister has a ministry. Every one of us. We're called, all of us are. The question is not just if we are now. The question is where and how are we called. You are called by God. You are called to be an active part of his mission. And if you are called, you got to start asking yourself some questions. If you are in the business world, why did God make you good at business? Surely it was not just to fill your life up with a bunch of comfort so you can spend the last 20 years of your life on vacation. That's not the way he works. He has given you unique skills and gifts and abilities and talents to use as tools to bless, to do a couple things, to bless other people and as a platform to fulfill his mission. If you're a stay-at-home mom, ask yourself, what role is it that I can play in the advance of the mission as I raise my children? The same question is, applies if you're in the military, if, you are in, uh, if you're a firefighter, if you're a school teacher, if you're a police officer. It doesn't matter what, if you're in a call center at Aflac, it, it doesn't matter. God may not have put vocational pastor on your business card, but you are on the front lines of, of mission. That word vocation, it even, even the word, it comes from the Latin word voca, which means to call. And so what, what if you started seeing your, your job as a calling from God? And I'm telling you, if you're a believer, you're called and made for a mission. I spent 14 years in, in the real estate business as, a, as an agent and as a broker, and m- massive mission field. I got all these people, everyday people that I don't know are riding in the car with me, out showing property or out on, at somebody's house talking about getting their house sold. I did that for 14 years. Massive, massive mission field. What if you just looked at, your job, whatever, whatever that is, in that same way. You could do this in, in, in the morning. You could get up and you could take a shower and you could get dressed and get the kids ready for school and go to work and then come home and go to sleep like everybody else. Yeah, of course you could do that. Or you could do it like you were made for mission. You wake up and you are expectant of what does God have in store for that day. You spend time with him in prayer, and you spend time with him reading his word. Don't y'all know that this is a supernatural book? It's, an, it, you gotta pick, it's the way God communicates with us today. Every single word is inerrant and infallible. 
You should be spending time with that every day before you start your day. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in His Word before you do anything else. And you're, you're listening for His instructions that He has for you for that day. You prepare your kids to live on mission too. And then you go to work, wherever that may be, with your eyes open and with a little bit of discernment to, to be able to recognize opportunities when they come in front of you. Now, wouldn't it be awesome in the morning if God just called you on the phone and, and, and you say, yeah, man, what's up, God? You got, what do you got for me today? You know, you want me to talk to that person in that cubicle? Yeah. All right, you want me to, you want me to encourage them? Well, yeah, I'll do that. Well, guess what? It's probably not fixing to happen quite like that. But we have got to recognize opportunities when the opportunity is in front of us and seize that opportunity because the scriptures are crystal clear that God wants to work in and through his church. And we are his church. He wants to work in and through us to tell the world about who he is and about his crazy, radical, unbelievable, passionate, jealous love that he has for us. We need to be out in the world telling the world about that. And so if you look at Jesus' invitation to Matthew in chapter 9, he doesn't say to Matthew, get in line. He doesn't say to Matthew, um, write me a 10-page paper with the pros and the cons on each side. He doesn't say to Matthew, I need you to write me a systematic theology paper on, on, on what I've done. He doesn't say all that. He just says, follow me. So two words, follow me. Jesus invites Matthew first and foremost into a relationship with him, into a relationship with him. And, and, and that relationship is not the byproduct of them doing ministry together. The relationship itself is the assignment. The ministry grows out of them spending time together. You want to birth and grow ministry opportunities? Spend time with Jesus. That's what happens. You spend time in communion in, with, with Jesus in prayer and in the Word and ministry opportunities birth and grow. From Matthew's point of view, he is completely shocked that Jesus even approaches him. But it is also remarkable that Matthew just gets up. Follow me. Bam, he gets up. Why drop everything? The joker's got a good-paying job. 90% of Israel's living below the poverty line. He seemingly didn't have to work hard. He's just sitting over at the booth, and people are, are bringing money to him. He was part of the Roman Empire's sort of um, uh, civil servant for the Roman Empire, which I would imagine they had a, a cool 401K and benefit package. But, but, but on top of that, Jesus' invitation was vague. He just said, follow me. He didn't tell him his name. We can't assume Matthew knew who he was. He didn't tell him his name. He didn't tell him where they'd be going. He didn't tell him what they'd be doing. He didn't tell, even tell Matthew what was in it for him. Matthew, you got to think, was what's the return on the investment? And he didn't tell him any of that stuff. And then you've got Matthew walking away from everything. Surely his position would have been filled quickly by the Roman government. And then 
what is he going to do if this whole following Jesus thing doesn't work out? How many Jews in Israel at that time are going to hire a former tax collector if this whole following Jesus thing doesn't work out? Matthew left safety. He left security. He left all the stuff in his life. He leaves it behind to follow Jesus. Luke chapter 5 is the same narrative, the same story as Matthew chapter 9. And Luke adds two words. Luke in 528, and this is a parallel narrative. Luke says, and he, Matthew, got up, left everything, and followed him. And it uses this word, uh, uh, katalipo, panta, and that's the Greek that that is the left everything and followed him. And, and what that word really means, it is like he abandons everything. He packs all of his stuff and he just throws it in the river. He just puts everything to the curb and he is 100% all in with Jesus. And so Jesus' invitation, his invitation is from sitting to following. And so can't you see Matthew sitting there and then Jesus walks up and he whispers, follow me. And one of the major things that that requires of Matthew is movement. It requires movement. He had to get up. He had to make a conscious decision, an intentional decision to make a move. He couldn't just stay sitting and yet follow. We can't just stay sitting and follow. And the second Matthew got up, he was on a mission. For us, for me and you, The calling is to get off the sidelines, is to get out of the recliner and get in the game of being made on a mission. And it's going to require a conscious getting up, an intentional getting up that may be a little bit uncomfortable. And that's a little bit of where we're going to head for the next six weeks or so. So verse 10 reads this. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And this is, there's a fear, a certain amount of fear that if I say yes, if I jump in, if I'm all in, then Jesus may move me to Zambia or China or somewhere else around the world. Could that happen? Could that happen? Of course it could happen. But I believe so often, more often than not, God simply says, let's just start where I've got you right now, wherever that may be. And it's going to start inside your home first. But wherever I've got you, let's just start there. So Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew says, all right, where are we going? And Jesus said, I think we'll go to your house. What's your address? That's where they're starting. And if you look at the next scene, it takes place in Matthew's house. Who you reckon probably who you reckon probably bought all the food, cooked all the food, fired up the grill and cooked? Probably it was Matthew because they were going to Matthew's house. You think Matthew had had folks over to his house before? I would imagine that he had. But this one felt a little bit different because before Matthew was the tax collector and now Matthew is the missionary. His ability to barbecue is now barbecuing for God. I don't know if that, that'd be a good small group, barbecuing for God. But the the deal is when I go from sitting to following, when I go from sitting to following, God's going to start changing some of the ways that I see the things in my life. 
the, the lens that I, that I put on, the lens that I look at everything through is going to somehow be a little more missional. Opportunities that may have walked right in front of me that I didn't recognize, maybe, I, maybe I'm going to start to see those. It's like I get a special Superman pair of x-ray vision goggles when I get saved or a, some decoder ring so that I become a little bit more discerning. And so his invitation is to go from sitting to following, number one. Number two, he will transform the way that I use my resources. And so God has blessed me and you with stuff that, we can, that can be used on mission. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about abilities. I'm talking about skills. I'm talking about talents. I'm talking about gifts. I'm talking about your brain. I'm talking about your logic. I'm talking about your the experiences that you have through as you walk have walked through life that, that, that somehow shape us a little bit. You know, Matthew used his house and his food to be on mission, and the same is true for us. You're going to look at your stuff different. You're going to look at your... Your, your finances a little differently. You're going to look at your possessions a little bit differently. I have a friend who is pretty successful, not stupid rich, but I don't know if that's the right way to say that or if I'm supposed to say that, not stupid rich, but pretty successful, um, who she has built herself two Christian orphanages in Thailand. I don't mean she was hammer nails. She funded, she paid for, she has built two orphanages in Thailand. She's taken her resources, the resources that God has blessed her with, the resources that she earned by using her gifts, her skills, her talents, her abilities, acknowledging all the while that every bit of that was totally from God, and then she turned around and she used that for his mission. We have volunteers in our church and in other churches, plenty of other churches that volunteer with M2540, the, our our food insecure homeless ministry who are on mission. They're made for mission. They use their resources to provide 250 or 60 meals every single week to folks who are hungry. And it's a kingdom thing. There's probably 150 volunteers in that ministry. Was it birthed in my church? Of course it was, but there's 10 or 12 other churches that are represented. I get so tired of churches not working together. This is about the kingdom. This is not about this church or that church. In fact, tomorrow night, Edgewood Baptist Church has jumped in and they're providing the whole meal for tomorrow night's outreach. It's a kingdom thing. It is not a a this church or that church thing. And we have a ministry called Generations. And you have people in our... It's a, a foster care intervention, foster care prevention ministry that in the last nine weeks... People in your church and people in other churches, there's 19 children that nine weeks ago would be in foster care in the system who today they're not. Because we just did, just getting them beds, twin-size beds. That kept a child from spending the next 10 years in foster care. How dumb is that? It takes nothing to get and, and to provide those sorts of resources but a, but, a, but a mindset of being on mission for God. And so he will, he, he will transform the way that you see your stuff, and then he'll transform the way that you see your relationships. Matthew had many meals with his guys, many meals with the tax collectors and his buddies, I guess, 
but 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 I got to think that this was the first time that the Pharisees were there, and I got to think this was the first time that Jesus and his disciples were there. And you wonder what kind of how did those conversations go? Did Matthew say, "Hey, my sins were forgiven today. You want you some of that?" I mean, I, I don't know how those conversations necessarily went, but you have to think what what did they talk about? What did what did Matthew hope for? When you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you want everybody to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So I got to think that Matthew, hours from Jesus saying, follow me, and Matthew jumping in, I got to think that he's sitting there thinking, all of my, all of my buddies, my tax collector buddies, I want them to have what, what, what I've got. And he's faced with the reality, probably he's the very best chance they ever have or ever will have of finding out who this Jesus guy is. And you got to know this, your sphere of influence, your circle of people is not your circle of people, and it's not my circle of people. My circle of people, now I better said your circle of people, the very best chance they have of hearing about Jesus is probably from you and not me. I think we fail in that every day. Opportunities are there every day. And so you just have to, to try to be discerning enough to recognize those opportunities. And when you jump in and you join God in a life on mission, you're going to realize that all of your friendships, all of maybe even the people that you may run into from time to time, it ain't coincidental. God has strategically placed you where he wants you. God has strategically crossed your path and the path of another human being. It's not a coincidence. And, 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 and you want what happened to you to happen to them. Because every single believer on the planet at some point had God explained to them by somebody, even if it was just a little explanation. And now we have the privilege and the honor of doing that ourselves. So verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because he saw them eating dinner, having breaking bread together. And table fellowship in that culture was a really important symbol of, of closeness, of oneness, of togetherness, and, and for Jesus and his disciples to be at the same table with tax collectors and sinners paints a picture of full acceptance of those tax collectors and sinners. Did that make sense? There was a full acceptance of them. And it's nuts to realize, to think about the Pharisees being there as well, and I bet they're thinking, what the heck are we doing in this, in this tax collector's house and they must have been blown away by what they saw. And that's a third, a third way that God begins to transform us when we go from sitting to following. He's going to transform the way that we respond to ridicule. The Pharisees were the rule keepers. The Bible calls them the keepers of the law. They were also sort of like the power broker, popular kids in school in that culture. And the tax collectors on the other end of the spectrum were the bottom of the barrel, the bottom of the totem pole. But they st it, that still didn't change the fact that they wanted somehow to be in good standing with the Pharisees. But that all changed this afternoon of hanging out with Jesus. Remember that we are called to be in a relationship with this Jesus guy. It'll change the way that you respond to ridicule. I'd remember it with my mom and dad. I told them I got saved. 
I worked every day of my life for the first 10 or 12 years after I graduated from college with my dad every day. And I got saved. And he put me and my wife and children to the curb for about five years. Didn't talk, didn't speak a word to me for, for probably three years. You're good. There's going to be ridicule. Me and you were not made to fit in. We were made to stand out. God calls Israel a peculiar people all throughout the Old Testament. We're not made to fit in. We're made to stand out. And when we're, when we're, when we're living on mission, we're not living for the approval of man. We're living for Jesus. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1. He said, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And I would imagine that Matthew, some of his buddies, some of his tax collector buddies, zero interest in Jesus. Do you think every one of your friends is going to just jump in and be all over it? They're not. But guess what else? We don't get to know who is. We're just called to tell the world about God. We don't know who's going to say yes and who's going to say no. But I also would imagine that some of Matthew's tax collector buddies heard that same little follow me. And they did jump in. Just like that's what's going to happen with y'all. You're going to talk to some and they're going to say yes and you're going to talk to some and they're going to say no. And so, so verses 12 and 13. On hearing this, Jesus said, and he's talking to the Pharisees here, he said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. What is Jesus' mission? He's a spiritual doctor rescuing physically and spiritually wounded and sick people. And that means that he came for you and me just the same way that he came for Matthew. He did not come to pile a bunch of baggage on top of us that we can't manage. He came to free us from the baggage. Matthew was sick and lost, and God saved him with two words, follow me. How many millions of people have been saved through Matthew's gospel? I was millions of people. And Jesus challenges the Pharisees to what is, the, what is the meaning of I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's from Hosea. It's Jesus quoting the prophet Hosea in chapter 6. I desire mercy. He, want, he desires mercy. Well, that's a, a, in the Hebrew, chesed is the word. Translated mercy, grace steadfast love, covenantal love, loving kindness. That is what Jesus desires of us. He doesn't desire sacrifice. He doesn't desire ritual. He doesn't desire for me and you to go out in the parking lot and slit the throat of an ox. That is not what he desires. God does not want the rituals to be a substitute for inward righteousness. God's not a ritualist. And he's not pleased with rituals that are divorced from steadfast love and mercy, which is exactly what the Pharisees had done. They observed the letter of the law. Yeah, they could tick mark it off. They observed the letter of the law, but they had zero compassion for the spiritually needy. And in the face of that mindset, Jesus told them, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the thought is that his call is only effective for those who acknowledge themselves 
to be a sinner. We have got to have a right view of ourselves. We, 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 we are not going to make it, and our friends and our family are not going to make it to the foot of the cross without an acknowledgement that we are sinful and we live in a sinful, broken, fallen world. But thank God for the cross. And, and, and you have no idea the impact that God can make through your life. And the journey is such a cool thing. Are, are you kidding? 16 years ago, I was Jewish. And I mean for real Jewish. Not like half Jewish, not like a little bit Jewish. Show enough for real Jew. Wearing a little beanie on my head, Jewish. And today I'm the pastor in a church that God is like in the I'm going to do crazy stuff business. But that, that is what he does. So I want y'all, <clears throat> I want to show you one of the most impactful clips from an incredible movie uh, that I've ever seen. It's from a movie called Hacksaw Ridge. It's about Desmond Doss, who is a, a medic who refused to carry a weapon. And he's hung up on a ridge, very high up on a ridge. Um, all, of the, all of his guys have retreated, and he is up there all night long. And I want, I want y'all to watch, and I want you to listen to what, to what he says.
a true story. Seventy-five men he saved that night, physically saved their lives. You've been called and made for a mission. What if every one of us, what if every one of us just simply said and had the attitude, one more, Lord, just bring one more. Just bring one more. Just put somebody in front of me. Do you know what happens when somebody gets saved? What happens to, to their family? What, what happens to their, to their kids? What happens to their grandchildren? You know, generations change when God saves somebody. We go from, from hell to heaven, and that changes generations of people. And you might be sitting here today, and you might be the one more. I don't know. Somebody might have drug you in here. Somebody might have drug you in here kicking and screaming. You might have drug yourself in here in total shame like Matthew, thinking about your past, but you know what? You can't do nothing about your past. You can't do a dang thing about your past, so stop trying to do stuff about it. Stop trying to get rid of the guilt and and the shame. You can't do a thing about it, but Jesus Christ can, and you can change your future by deciding for Christ like Matthew did. You can change your destiny because he is saying today, follow me and I will wipe all that junk clean. And today you can say, I'm in. Sign me up. Nobody can do it for you, though. You, you, you can't have your mama's faith, and you can't have your daddy's belief, and you can't have your son's or your daughter's belief. you got to decide for yourself, and no decision is a no decision. Does that make sense? No, there, there is no tie. You know, we live in a world where everything's all equal. There, no decision is a no decision. He can change your past. He died on a cross 2,000 years ago so that all of that junk and all of those sins can be put, the Scripture says, as far as the east is from the west. And that's a metaphor for it's gone. When the Father looks at you, He don't see all of that junk. He sees the white robe of Christ that's clean wrapped around you. He sees that. He doesn't see the filth that is inside of us. And so what do you have to do? You you repent, you believe, and you change. And and you may not have the power. You know what? You don't have the power to change. You don't have the power to change the bad habits that you know you shouldn't be doing. You don't have the power to love your husband again. You don't have the power to love your wife again. But if you surrender your life to Christ, He will give you the power to love your wife again. He will give you the power to love your husband again. And you may say, Ed, well, I don't know what to do. I come to church and I do this and I do that and I just don't have peace. But I'm telling you, you come to Christ. Come to Him and He will give you a new peace. He will give you a a, a new joy. He will give you a new purpose. He will give you a new meaning. He will give you a new mission. And if you have any doubt whatsoever today that you don't know Him or you do know Him, I want to ask you to pray this prayer with me. Y'all close your eyes, bow your heads, and, and just if you have any doubt in your mind, then just pray this along with me. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm wrecked and I'm broken and I'm sorry. And I'm willing to turn from my sin 
because you will allow me to do that. You will empower me to do that. And so this morning, Lord, I receive you as my Savior. Lord, I receive you as my Lord. And from this moment on, I want to follow you. In Christ's name, amen. So here's the deal. If you just did that, if you just said that, then you just went from hell to heaven. And the, 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 the heavens are just overwhelmed with joy. The people in our body here are overwhelmed with joy. And we want to come alongside of you in that. I want you, and this may sound cheesy, but I want you to fill that connection card out and say, and, and say that you gave your life to Christ today. Not again so we can tackle you on the way out, but so that our church staff and our church body can pray with you and pray alongside of you and pray for you. And the next, the next, I was going to say the next thing on your checklist, but it ain't about that. When God saves you, the next thing is, is, is we call it God plunge, biblical baptism. The next one is on July 15th. Put that on the little connection card as well. Um, if, 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 if you went from hell to heaven last week and you haven't signed up for the God plunge, put that on that connection card and drop it in the offering bucket because we just want to come alongside of you. Um, so, Lord, let me, let, let, me, let me pray real quick. We'll get back to, uh, to uh, one more worship song. Lord, we love you. <clears throat> we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. Lord, we ask you, all of us in this room, just put one more in front of us. Just give us one more person to talk to every day, and generations and lives will change. Lord, I lift this church body up to you. I lift our our city, our state, and our country up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we've got one more thing to do. It's a time in our worship service where we worship the Lord through the giving uh, of an offering. And those of us that call my church home, we're, we're invested in the ministries uh, of, of our church. And, and we, uh, we have faith that God is going to take our resources, our financial resources, and just do crazy stuff and bring... The mission of our church is no different than the mission was 2,000 years ago. It is to see lost people land at the foot of the cross. That is the mission. And when we give, we use those funds. God doubles them and triples them, and we use those funds to fulfill that mission. So y'all can, the host team, y'all can come on and we can do that, and I'm going to say a prayer over that. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the, the opportunity to give uh, to give financially to the church lord we thank you that you let us have a little bit to run our lives it's all yours and you let us have some of it and so lord we're giving it back we trust and we believe that you're going to triple it and double it uh to fulfill your mission and lord we're just honored that you 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 take us along on the ride and so lord we lift that up to you as well in your son's precious name amen